0: For most of us, we have one more week for our month retreat together. Just noting how that, noticing how that thought. Impacts the heart, it might give rise to panic. Oh God, gotta squeeze some insights in here.
1: <laughs>
0: or, or dread of uh, the thought of returning. Or maybe a hallelujah moment. Praise the Lord. Only one more week of my penance. Our dear uh, friend and teacher, Ajahn Sajito, said the way he used to practice mindfulness, it was like a prison sentence. (laughs) Sentence to 10 years of mindfulness it was so heavy in his early days. But however, that thought impacts us. As practitioners, we're encouraging ourselves not to be afraid of contact, but just to be interested And to encourage us to, to use this, this time well. Because as we know, it's not easy to find the opportunity to withdraw, retreat to such a conducive place that's supportive so that we can get our life into perspective. retreating not out of any fixed position against the world or our daily life, but to to give us a point of reference, an opportunity to recognize what is true principle that we can uh, remember and uh, return to so that we can more wisely Compassionately, skillfully respond when we're not in retreat. We'll still have our body with us. When people used to uh, come playing to our teacher. Uh, when lay people used to come to Majan Chan, complain, they just, it just, life was too busy, they didn't have time to practice. And then he would go, nah! and with this look of incredulity, this, so you don't have time to breathe? And they said, well, 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 of course I have time to breathe. Then he said, well, you have time to practice. We don't have to make practice so special We can intensify effort and we're having a chance to notice periods of that on this retreat. But we all can also soften effort, relax, let be. That's also an important part of practice. Narrow focus, wide focus. Strong effort and even relinquish effort. What happens when we just say mark it down? I quit. Write that down and underline it. This is it. Done. (laughs) So when we say done, that's a very important moment to notice right after that moment. Done. Probably are very awake. probably there's a relief. Let's put something down, this, this monumental undertaking I'm doing, the Enlightenment project. Tanisha's brother is so sweet. When we see him in England, he'll say something like, Tanisha, how's that Enlightenment project going? <laughs> <laughs> Except he'll say it with a d- different accent, I'm <laughs> sure. But, but that's the teaching from a Zen master because sometimes when we make it in a big pro- project then when we go hang it up there it is done that's stopping letting be yet do we keel over dead there's that relinquishment of the trying but there's still Without trying, what's there without even trying? So we get effort in perspective too, strong effort, subtle effort, giving up effort. That's what letting be, letting go. That's why the out-breath, we don't just breathe in. No, 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 Kitty Sorry, you got to make a choice. The in-breath is inspiring, it's energizing. Out-breath is stale. Give me the in breath every time. Well, you we know, we can't just breathe in. Yes, you can. You can float, but explode. And breathing out is, is letting go, softening, relaxing. We have the chance in these extended periods for cultivating agility in our practice. And we've had a chance to, all of us, to meet some of the deep-rooted patterns Sankaras that have been accumulated over decades, lifetimes. We can wonder where they came from, we can contemplate them, but it's quite mysterious. Sometimes one can see more clearly what gives rise to what? But oftentimes it's a very mysterious. But patterns of uh, anxiety. Contraction, vulnerability, shields ready. Discouragement. Sense of oh, it doesn't work. I tried it. it, doesn't work. It won't ever work. Sense of despair. Or restlessness. Driving us mad, the mind that's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. We each have unique combination of patterns that get concretized, seem so solid, so real, so me. Desire, aversion, anger, wanting to disappear, and we've also uh, noticed that uh, just because we decide, yeah, I want to let that go, that it doesn't just automatically happen. our teacher would would encourage us, you know, don't get discouraged. Just even the recognition of when you're suffering, of when you're stuck to something, you know, you, you see that attachment, that identification with the worry, the resentment the gnawing, creeping, depression, the rage. He said it's 70%. You should... 70% of the work is just even recognizing that, knowing that this is dukkha. Ah, I'm feeding it. There's this origin of suffering. It's being perpetuated by this identification, this grasping. We want to let go. But we can't. And this is... uh We can't force it. We can try. Certainly, we've all tried. Again, as Asan Sejita would say, the heart doesn't like to be bullied. And we know what happens when we just start to try to bully the heart. It just rebels. Even seems to make things stronger. And this again is where we're agility. Patience and kindness are so important. Particularly kindness. We've been focusing a lot on the wisdom and encouraging a kindly attitude, a mixing of non-fighting and kindness in with with our practice, but we haven't focused so specifically on the uh, practice of kindness. But it's uh, very important. Remember the Earlier in the retreat when I was quoting the Buddha when he said, you know, even that kind of finger snap of cultivating the perception of impermanence as immeasurable power to bless, to liberate, to bring forth that which is healing and wholesome. The Buddha also used that same image with kindness. Monks, Buddha was talking to his monks. He said, if a bhikkhu cultivates loving kindness for as long as a finger snap, He's called a bhikkhu, a mendicant, an alms mendicant. He is not destitute of jhana, of deep calm meditation. He carries out the master's teaching. He responds to advice and does not eat the country's alms food in vain. So what should be said of those who make much of it? Even a finger snap. So remember before we were talking about the finger snap of change, how important that is. When rooted in desire, the world has all these solid things in it that are me and mine and good and I want them and the things I don't want or we push them away, they're over there. So even a finger snap of change started to reveal the Unreliability, the ephemerality, the insubstantiality of all that we take to be me and mine. And that change just starts to put hairline fractures in all that we grasp at. And to cultivate the perception of change, one is in the position, one is abiding in the changeless to notice change. Like that sunbeam that the first disciple that woke up, when he noticed the sunbeam and the dust dancing, noticing the movement that were guests. They came and went. But in noticing the movement, he also touched in to notice that which remains. that was still. Even a finger snap is so important because that's started the great return, the important disenchantment. Disillusionment, in the positive sense. The spell is being broken. When, the, when it's, all oh, we're getting somewhere, we're still in the spell. Don't bother me right now. I'm getting to success. Sorry, talk to you later. I'm moving to happiness. I'll get back to you. I'm on my enlightenment project. That's becoming might be wholesome, but we're... So to even see my enlightenment project, even a finger snap of change, to notice that that conditions are rising and ceasing in the unmoving, boundless, present. And that begins the great return from just looking out to start returning back. Then what is this finger snap of kindness I mean was this Buddha just trying to buck up some of the disciples they would gotten a little down maybe but I think it's similarly significant Finger snap of change and a finger snap of kindness. Now, the the way I want to talk about kindness is the not necessarily the certain phrases that one needs to run through the mind. Those those can be helpful. It's an attitude, the way that it was taught to us by our dear teacher Ajahn Sumedho, the senior Western monk in our uh, Taifar Sangha with Ajahn Chah. And he taught us that uh, whereas normally you're focusing on things, projects, that in a moment of kindness, whatever is happening, you're opening and allowing, including, welcoming, being well with, whatever it is. Not pretending, not a whitewash job. Not a rose-colored paint job. Not a... uh, trying to convince oneself that everything is wonderful. But however it happens to be to to, uh, not fight that. Non-contention to allow to welcome he described it like you know inviting someone over, over for a cup of tea you know they come to the door maybe they're not what you expected maybe they don't smell the way you think somebody should smell that's coming to tea Maybe they don't look the way your views and opinions are. They should look. Maybe they don't have the manners that we think that somebody should have. That's all our views and opinions. He says you're not pretending to approve of everything. It's not lying about it, but one can offer them a seat at the table. Offer them when our tendency, especially these deep-rooted ones, comes, you know, we dread. And then when they're not there, there's such a temptation to think, hallelujah, i <sighs> was free. It was a bit of a run, but I got there. Well, then if we attach to something not being there, then when it's there, there's all this uh, suffering whatever it happens to be, discouragement or aversion. Rather than, you know, trying to fix it, overcome it, trying to get ourselves to let it go, there can be bhavadana and vibhavadana in that, a subtle generation of surf Suffering. What happens if there's really finger snap or a a little longer even of kindness? Letting that very condition come in. It's a powerful alchemy. Especially these deep-rooted Tendencies we, we We try to force it oftentimes in a hurry about it, wanting to get over them. And that kindness, that allowing that tension, that pain, that 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 sorrow, that distress, that taint, that whatever however we conceive of it to be blessed. Our teacher called it, Blessing the orphans of consciousness. The escape hatch is right here. We want the escape to be out of my sight. And so when they're out of our sight, if there's still aversion to them, there's a part of our energy body that's keeping something at bay. That if something you know comes up and we're reacting, averse to it, then we're still concretizing it. That's still we're creating a sankara in that moment. We're creating something that I don't want. Part of me that shouldn't be there. And kindness. That moment of kindness, rather than splitting off, it's including. That's why it's so powerful. Because it takes one to the boundless. It takes one to the boundless, the measureless. The particular, which when we take something particular to be me and mine, we haven't noticed. When we climb onto it, take that praise, that success, that peace, to be in mine, that birth, Then as it shifts and changes, we experience, because we created it, we experience aging and decay and then dislocation and death when whatever we're leaning on moves. If I'm tired, and I used to be really tired all the time, so that I would look for the next wall to lean on, the next bed to lie down on. It's really hard. So sometimes walking around you, you know, lean on something, lean on somebody's car. But if they drive off, then you fall down. Whatever we lean on. So if we lean on some condition not being there, or lean on some condition being there, some pleasant condition, then that's, it's not evil, but it's dukkha. So the particular keeps dissolving into the infinite. This peace is always here and now, said the Buddha. Ajahn Chah would say it's just the wanting and not wanting of the mind, the wanting and not wanting. Wanting and not wanting. That keeps us running ahead or trying to get away from so that we don't see. Kindness is uh, powerful, it's an alchemy it's an offering to ourself to all around us. I think it would be neat if people who are unemployed and, and feel useless, I think they would, I think anybody who's if what the Buddha says is true, and I believe it, even a moment of practicing being kind, you can really call yourself a Buddha's disciple. You're worthy of being supported by the country's alms food. We should have a kindness brigades. Sounds too militant. But just being kind, practicing in this way of, in this moment? You know, if we're wanting peace and wanting to get back to calm and thank you, Kitty Sir, I know that you're doing, bless your heart, you're doing the best you can. But, you know, I really want to get back to my jhana. Okay. Don't worry, this won't last too long. But what if, what if we just, you know, welcome the sound? Welcome the feelings in the body, some of which are pleasing, I hope, some of which maybe are uncomfortable. Just allow them to be, not fight them. The moods, our energy. Would we just practice being, may this be well, just as it is. Notice that mind opens an allow, sound, the natural movement of consciousness is not a rigid abiding. It's an allowing. Countless times I've noticed when I'm making a problem out of something, if I just uh, remember, ah, this is an orphan of consciousness, welcome it. Bless it. Then it is just what it is. On the night of the Buddha's enlightenment all kinds of things came to haunt the Buddha, scare the Buddha, intimidate the Buddha, try to bring forth doubt and regret in the the Buddha to be. And he he didn't, you know, annihilate them with a some kind of automatic weapon. He said, I know you. Just didn't try to knock them away. Even after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara would come whisper to the Buddha, you're not really enlightened, don't you? You must be lonely all out here in the forest on your own and you know, you're abandoning your family. And the Buddha could have thought, oh God, I thought I was beyond doubt, I guess I'm not. I guess I better tell everybody I got it wrong. She said, I know you. Yet if our awakening depends on something not being there, boy, we are setting ourselves up. Nope, no restlessness. Nary a speck. Nope, no desire, no aversion. No. I had one a couple of years back. But if we won't, if we're—it's lovely if stuff's not there. But if we're banking on it, then something comes. Heck, it might be just walked in with somebody else for all we know. We f- we feel something, and then oh my gosh, we gotta. It's very important to learn how to relax with and be with chaos and orphans, things that we don't necessarily want. Yes, we can. Subtle states are very uh, good too. I'm not knocking them, but this kindness and allowing is very important. It's transformative. You've probably, many of you who've heard me before have heard this story, but uh, there's one that always comes to mind of the transforming power of kindness. I used to be, as a monk, a prison chaplain. I would go visit. Prisoners were interested in uh, meditation. And uh, I was the abbot of a small monastery, Buddhist monastery in the southwest of England in Devon. And uh, there was, at the time, a high-security prison on Dartmoor. And uh, there was some... They weren't allowed... The prisoners weren't allowed to meet in groups... Um, but there was a, uh, they had been, somebody had helped petition the, I guess, a warden that there was uh, some that were interested in meditation and wanted to meet a Buddhist monk. And it was uh, near the full moon of May, and so uh, this, uh, whoever was arguing for it said, no, it was uh, an opportunity for them to, c- to celebrate the birth awakening and passing away of the Buddha. And um, at that time, uh, another uh, Buddhist uh, monk had uh, started, uh, you know, through his Angulimala project, uh, uh, wanting to... uh, appealing to the authorities that it was important that the people interested in meditation and Buddhism should be allowed to to learn about that too in prisons. So anyway, I I went down to this uh, prison. Usually I went to a different prison, Exeter prison, but I I went to to this uh, Dartmoor prison. and I had my security clearance and these uh, stony-faced guards were taking me through all these different doors and barbed wires and, and incredibly heavy, gray walls in, uh, on a heavy, gray day. And uh, finally, I, I ended back up at, um, inside the prison in, in a room that wasn't particularly inspiring. And uh, there was uh, some space cleared on the floor and there was about a dozen uh, prisoners and uh, who were meeting together for the first time. And then, uh, so I was uh, set down with them. And... Um, uh, so I was uh, in my robe, shaved head, but the guards were right outside the door and the... Uh, Stony faced guards, when they weren't uh, looking right at me, at least I couldn't see what they looked like, but somehow outside the door they started uh, cutting up and making fun of us, f- making fun of me. So they were saying, Harry, Harry, Hare Krishna, Hare, Harry, Harry, have you seen Larry? No, what about Barry? Uh, so they must have thought I was Hare Krishna. And uh, so they were uh, doing some mocking. And uh, uh, so I uh, just tried to breathe through it. But uh, there was some tension uh, in the room and I thought we'd break the ice by getting to know everybody and people went around. Sometimes they said what got them in there. Uh, And... um, And there was one uh, guy in there that uh, was in there for, for uh, killing the. He had walked in on his uh, wife with somebody else in bed and he had uh, uh, killed the guy. And. Um, So uh meanwhile they're mocking us and uh and so I thought well why don't we practice some kindness meditation and uh this this guy that had just announced that he had uh, killed somebody says uh, I don't have any kindness I'd break his neck again if I had the chance and uh so I'm thinking wow this is this is not swinging along so nicely <laughs> <laughs> and uh but I but I was really grateful for the way that uh, I had been taught. So there was some deep cars happening here, mocking us, guards, whatever they have to deal with, prisoners that aren't being allowed to meet usually, meeting together. This uh, person, Arthur, who was in for killing somebody and still angry about it. And it wasn't, uh, I was grateful that we weren't trying to pretend that uh, this situation was anything in particular. I said, no, the way I'm talking about practicing kindness is that we, we just honor how it is. We're allowing and not adding more fighting. It's not nice being mocked by the guards, but we're not going to add any fighting to it we just hear that sound and whatever reaction we're having to that we welcome that and even the conviction that I don't have any kindness that's a feeling that's uh, happening then we allow that and whatever's happening in our body we allow that we breathe with that we're just this, this kindness is opening to and welcoming letting what is come in just as it is. And uh, wishing, may this be well, just as it is. Just allowing it. And as we did that, and the guards were, you know, still doing their thing, and that power of kindness, that power of just not fighting, and as uh, Arthur touched into that jagged rage, and conviction that he was someone who didn't have kindness. When he didn't try to convince himself and I didn't try to convince him that you are this or you are that, just by touching that with, not trying to get rid of it or fix it, but just opening to it or something that happened, like a meltdown. Kindness has the power to melt. It's an alchemy. As we did that, we noticed kindness is measureless. Whatever's happening, you open to it. Open to it. So the abiding of kindness is not dependent on certain things, it's not dependent on certain sounds certain feelings, certain moods. It's a divine abiding because whatever it is, one is welcoming that too, that too, that too. So we got wider and wider and wider and felt like we were floating. And Arthur, who was convinced he had no kindness, uh, started crying And this uh, group of ours who hadn't met each other, hadn't been, been able to talk to, uh, to one another, we felt this uh, connection. And we didn't fight the guards either. So for that time, we were not imprisoned. We were freed. Liberating. kindness. And in those particular moments, those guards were imprisoned by their views of mocking or whatever they thought of what we were doing. But in time, they got quiet. I don't know if they were touched by what we did or whether they just got tired but I've always uh, remembered that and remember this uh, very important principle in the Dharma which will really help us. It's called the salt crystal principle. The Buddha says, why is it that uh, some people do a trifling bad thing and they experience the result momentarily, it, it, hardly, it, it hardly affects them at all. Somebody else does something that's you know not too heavy but not a good thing. And why do they then get drugged into a, a hellish state? What's going on there? Same, same little trifling thing. The Buddha compared it. He used this uh, simile of the salt crystal or a lump of salt. He said if you put a lump of salt in a small amount of water and dissolve it. He said, is that water fit to drink? And the monk said, no, you you can't, it's too salty, can't drink it. But if you take, take that same lump of salt and put it in a fresh, pure, flowing river The Buddha said, then, could you drink it? And I said, yes. He said, you would hardly taste it. It had been dissolved in this measureless flow of purity. And he said, someone who is undeveloped in body, doesn't contemplate the body, has no virtue. Remember, what is virtue? When we we practice not saying something because we don't want to hurt someone, not doing something because it could exploit or harm someone else. Remember the opening evening, the Buddha called those the great gifts when we practice virtuous restraint, we are making an immeasurable gift of freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression to countless beings. So when there's a practice of virtue, one is already linking to an ocean, to something wider. When someone doesn't practice contemplating body, doesn't practice virtue, doesn't develop the mind mindfulness dwells restricted small-hearted they dwell with suffering that contracted state then when even a small thing when we're in a contracted state we know that if we notice when we're in a contracted state some little thing can, can some little thing can overwhelm us Said that's like that lump of salt in a small cup. But when we practice awareness of body, getting economists to pleasure and pain, practice mindfulness, practice virtue, practice not harming, not exploiting. Practice large-hearted, practice discernment, I left out discernment. How does that relate to the salt crystal? Well, when we take something particular, if we notice change, what is that? Immediately, the particular is showing us the measureless. Because each sound, each sensation, each breath, when we notice change, then we're touching into the changeless, the boundless, the wide, unmoving. So sometimes we try too hard to overcome the obstructions. We're pressing them and squeezing them and lecturing them. Judging ourselves, oh, you're hopeless. It's where the kindness, the salt crystal principle is learning to just have all the time in the world. Our teacher would encourage us all the time in the world to just be with that state. That then allows the melting, just like it did with Arthur by allowing those voices i have no kindness i'd like to break his neck again you know what if i have said to him yeah you're right arthur you're good thing you're locked up <laughs> but to to see that that, that thought's just a th- what it is is what it's a thought that's not all of who he is He didn't find out it was not all of who he is until he just allowed it. And by allowing it, by being kind, by letting it be there, he discovered a whole deeper depth of feeling. By the end of the meeting, he was laughing about suffering. It's just (laughs) dukkha. Kindness is one of the most powerful ways especially in our, in our uh, daily lives. Also, generosity is the same. How, many, how often are we practicing to get to attainment, to get to calm, to get to jhana, to get to the insight? It can be subtle, but it's dukkha, it's bhava. It's, it's wanting to get there. That's why the letting go, the returning. One dish definition of anattā is it's not mine. It's a non-possession. We give back. Giving back. It's really nice sometimes just to practice giving everything back with each out-breath. Just give it all back. It's not ours. Or to dedicate, when we're trying to get stuff for me and feeling like a failure, sometimes we just dedicate the sitting. This is There's so many beings like me that are restless, obstructed, whatever cocktail we have of hindrances. May my moments of patience with this, may this be a gift. That's another way we can we can experience the salt crystal dissolving in a moment of trying to get something what happens if we just make it a gift another story, mysterious story, when I was three years in the attic, sick, lying down almost 24 hours a day with exhaustion, inflammation, internal bleeding, but in a loving monastery, which was fortunate. And what made me at this moment, I don't know, on a cold damp afternoon, I had a tiny little window in this attic. I was in the attic so I wouldn't have to be right in the hubbub, the, the monastery was a bit of a building project so I was away, out of the way. Something made me crawl up out of my bed and peek out this window and as I looked out the window I saw someone walking down the drive in that uh, late afternoon with a rope. And I just knew, something new, this person's going to try to kill themselves. And I felt I had to do something, yet the monastery seemed deserted. I, I just had a light robe. I put it on, and there was no one in the house that I could see. So I went saying Kuan Yin's name which I do a lot that's my way of another way of returning to the measureless my illness worrying about my illness holding a holy name is a way of touching into the wide energy of the compassionate ones because each name like the name of Kuan Yin arises and dissolves into the listening and the listening is measureless and the listening is where everything returns. So I would a lot of times just hold that name. And especially I was as I thought, I've got to f- try to find this person. So I went out the door into like misty, damp, cold, darkening late afternoon. And about 100 or so yards ahead, I could see the, this person walking so I tried to hurry along, it was cold. And then they turned left and uh, went down this little country lane. And then uh, I hurried to that turn and they were still quite far ahead and I still was following them. And I saw they turned into the forest. And time I got there, uh, my intuition was right. They were tying the rope to a tree and we were gonna hang themselves this person. And this uh, person was a visitor to the monastery who had spent time in prison and just was overwhelmed with something. He was not happy to see me and, uh, you know, get out of here kind of stuff. And I'm uh, trying to, I don't even remember what I said, trying to talk to him. and. so there we are in a damp forest on a cold winter afternoon damp, uh, and suddenly he looks at me, and uh, he, he was in the spiral of uh, just wanting to kill himself, but at one point he looked at me and he just said, your teeth are chattering, and uh, my teeth were chattering, <laughs> you know. And uh, I was freezing. And uh, that so struck him. I don't know that I'd come out after him. But to me, the the next point is is what I want to emphasize. He had a heavy black motorcycle, leather black motorcycle jacket. He took that off and put it around my Shoulders. He made a gift. He just—he was in a spiral that was—he was convinced that the only way out is kill myself. He took that his jacket off and made a gift, and it snapped him out of it. Not forever, but made a connection, and I, I hugged him. And the my intuitive sense was like a hugging thousands of burning needles. I felt his energy body was just lots of burning needles. Must have been really hard to bear that stay. But generosity just... And it's not that one has to go out and find somewhere else to make a gift. Even just the attitude of... Like at the end of the day or in in any moment during the day, especially if you're trying to get somewhere. If one has the thought, may the goodness from my life this moment... And we... All of us here have a lot of goodness. Incredible goodness. The collective commitment to try to not harm, not exploit, to be truthful, to cultivate mindfulness, patience. Having the thought, may the goodness of my life be shared. Just that intention. Turning around that bhava of trying to get somewhere but for a moment trying to get hold of something but for a moment relinquishing opening sharing very powerful it's that same that's why it's called a It takes us from being locked into the particular to connected to the limitless Change does the same thing. Locked in the particular, seeing change, we touch back into the measureless. Kindness does the same thing. We're locked into some duality fighting. When we welcome, we open to the measurelessness of unity. Non-fighting. So may we remember this salt crystal principle. May we remember that the sacred ground is not somewhere else. It's always here and now. But when we're so busy getting somewhere, so busy getting rid of something, we overlook it. Yes, moments of seeing change and letting go touch us back into that ground. But also moments of not fighting, welcoming. Welcoming, offering, letting go. All takes us home. Finishing with a gift, a softening, a letting go, trying to keep our insights, trying to hold on to our virtue, leads to stress. just may any goodness from our life as we relax and let go, may it be shared above, below, and all around for the welfare of all because we're all kindred spirits, brothers and sisters in birth and death. We all merge in this luminous heart so as a pebble sends ripples in all directions so too may this gesture of relaxation share the blessings of our life for the welfare of all oh